You're listening to sermons from St. Macarios the Great, Orthodox Mission in Hyde Park. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This week, I stumbled across a news story from 2007. That's a good bit of time ago, but I'm told these stories crop up from time to time. The news story was of a pastor in a church in Ohio that thought of a clever way to teach the parable of the talents. So one Sunday, the pastor began preaching through the text and highlighting how two of the servants were praised for their ability to double the money their master gave them, while the third servant was cast into outer darkness because he was afraid to take a risk and instead buried his talent in the ground. Then, at the end of the sermon, the pastor had the ushers move around the congregation and hand everyone an envelope filled with $50. The pastor's charge was simple. Find a way to double the money. And this is a quote I pulled from the news article. Quote, Live the parable of the talents. End quote. Now, some people scoffed. Others were hesitant, but the news story goes on to detail various ways that members of the congregation used that money to increase their talent. A retired Navy pilot used the money to purchase airtime at a local airport and then charged people money to ride along on the flights. He made $700. A middle-aged woman pulled out an old family recipe for tomato soup, which she made and sold. She made $180. Another woman made $450 crafting pendants and beads. A 12-year-old girl made and sold blankets. An 87-year-old man made and sold bird feeders. The stories go on and on. The church even held a bazaar, a sort of marketplace, after a few of their services so that people could sell their wares. And as the challenge ended and the church received back the talents that they had distributed, they began counting. A week later, the news was announced. They had more than doubled the money initially distributed, and it would be split between various charities. Now, that's a, a nice feel-good story for the news. And it perfectly reflects our cultural and social biases and beliefs. Jesus, according to this understanding of the parable, was a good capitalist. And he has some sound investing advice for us. Or he has a word of encouragement to spur on our entrepreneurial spirit. Now, maybe we don't interpret the parable in quite such 
crass economic terms, but the spiritual import that we typically assign to this parable is roughly the same. God has given us various talents or gifts. In fact, the English word talent is derived from this parable. And our Lord is encouraging us to use and multiply those talents rather than hiding them in the dirt or leaving them unused. But is this really what's going on in this parable? Prepare yourselves, because I want to offer an alternate reading of this parable that might challenge the congenial Jesus that we are used to. The first lens through which we interpret the Bible is always cultural. We're all born into a cultural world that provides us with a certain set of assurances, assumptions, beliefs, ideologies that range from the obvious, like language, to those we are almost incapable of noticing. The scriptures have a very different cultural world. And reading the scriptures is always a cross-cultural experience. We Western, rationalistic, individualistic capitalists look at this story, this parable, and we naturally see the hero as the two servants who invested wisely. This fits all of our cultural and class assumptions about value and the good of profit. And we dismiss and we scorn the unprofitable servant, lazy, fearful, unimaginative. But if we read this parable not with Western eyes, not with the eyes of middle-class American morality, but from the perspective of a Middle Eastern Judean peasant, we see things differently. So what would it mean to read this parable, not from our perspective, but from the perspective of Jesus's original audience? You see, while we have no time for a lazy servant who makes no profit, a Middle Eastern peasant would have understood this third servant to be the hero of the parable. Now you might be saying, what? That might strike you as odd. How can that be? And before we can begin to answer that question, we have to start by questioning some of our own assumptions. The first thing we have to ask is, is this a parable of the kingdom of God? That might seem like a silly question. You might be thinking, of course it is. It says so in the text. And this is where our Bible translations, and especially sometimes even our liturgical translations, let us down. They betray us. There's an old Italian adage 
Traditore, traditore. Every translator is a traitor. It's interesting to note that in Matthew's Gospel, this parable does not begin with the usual formula, the kingdom of heaven is like. That's the normal way that parables are introduced in Matthew's Gospel, but not this one. If you look at some translations or even many liturgical Bibles, the phrase is supplied. It's inserted, but it does not appear in the Greek text of Matthew's Gospel. The parable simply begins... It is like. And we are left to puzzle out the meaning of this. Another assumption that we often bring to this parable is our tendency to allegorize. We see a master in a parable and we assume this figure is a stand-in for God. But is the master in this story analogous to God? I mean, this is, of course, how we've been trained to read the parables because of our long tradition of allegory. But for a Middle Eastern Judean peasant, from that perspective, the master of this story would have been seen as a hero as a horrendous figure for a number of reasons. First of all, the master is rich, which in the mind of a Judean peasant could only mean one thing. He was greedy. Almost every time you read the word rich in the scriptures, you can replace that with the word greedy. That is the cultural understanding of the time. We, of course, live in a different world. We see profit as a good thing. We believe in this fantasy of infinite growth on a finite planet. We see the good as unlimited. But this was not the case for the ancient world. The scholars Bruce Molina and John Pilch explain the ancient understanding of wealth through a concept called the limited good. The ancient world believed, essentially, that life was a zero-sum game. All the good and all the goods of existence, whether material or spiritual, were already distributed at creation. And there were no more goods available. So in order for one person to gain above and beyond their share of the good, the only place that surplus could come from was taking from somebody else's share. Imagine, if you will, a pizza with eight slices that needs to be split between eight people. The only way you get more pizza is by taking someone else's slice. The pizza store is closed. They aren't making any more pies. In In the ancient world especially in the minds of peasants. Any surplus that was not shared was the result of theft or usury, a sin in the scriptures, a sin according to the book of Deuteronomy. This view 
was still present, in fact, hundreds of years later in the early church fathers. Here is what St. Jerome says of the rich. Every rich person is either a thief or the heir of a thief. In the cultural understanding of this world, the only way to get rich is through stealing from somebody else or inheriting what your ancestors stole from someone else. This is not the way an honorable person behaves. Accumulating more than your share brings dishonor. So in our parable, in order to avoid bringing dishonor on himself, the master has his slaves do his dirty work for him to take the shame upon themselves. The slaves are initially set up as sort of patsies or fall guys for the rich man's crimes. I mean, does that sound like God to you? It would have been unthinkable for Jesus' Middle Eastern Judean peasant audience. It goes exactly contrary to the rich man praised by the wisdom of Ben Sirah. In the wisdom of Ben Sirah, chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, we have a description of an honorable rich person. Happy, says Ben Sirah, the rich person, found without fault, who does not turn aside after wealth. Who is he that we may praise him? For he has done wonders among his people. What Ben Sirah is saying there is the honorable rich person does not pursue profit, but rather uses his wealth or her wealth for the benefit of the people. The rich man in this parable is the exact opposite of the one described by Ben Sirah. So I ask again, is the rich man in this parable really what God is like? Let's think about another element of the story, the description of the master. How does the third slave describe him? He says, Master, I knew you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant and gathering where you did not scatter. The master is demanding, hard, harsh, ruthlessly benefiting from the labor of others, meticulously scrutinizing the ledgers of his slaves, and benefiting from the sin of usury. Does that sound like God to you? It sounds more like the devil to me. Here's how the scholar John Pilch, who taught for many years at Georgetown University, describes how Jesus' audience would have viewed the master in this parable. The audience of Jesus would have viewed the master as, quote, arrogant, opportunistic, greedy, and rapacious, end quote. 
and the master repeats back the characterization of the third slave. He agrees and confirms his understanding when he complains that the third slave should at least have put the money in the bank at usury, a practice again forbidden by the scriptures in the book of Deuteronomy. No, I do not think that we should view the master as analogous to God. So how should we understand this parable? What are we to make of it? Well, what do the first two slaves do? Why are they praised? Why does the master commend them? Because they joined with the master in his practice of exploitation and domination. The first two slaves did not merely serve the master, they imitate him. They extract an unbelievable rate of profit, literally doubling the money. Around this time, the Roman interest rate was 12%, which if you compare to a modern-day savings account, is tremendous. Or even if you compare it to the reasonable hope of return from the stock market, is pretty tremendous. But compare that to doubling your money and it's a pittance. An insane amount of return. The first two slaves did what they had to do to get ahead. They acted ruthlessly like the master in order to advance beyond the dumb and simple lazy people like that third slave. But compare that to how the third slave acts. He acts with honor in handling the money in the same way recorded by the scriptures and articulated by the rabbinic understanding of the law. What was the proper way to care for someone else's money when it was entrusted to you? The book of Tobit gives us one example. In the book of Tobit, Tobit leaves ten talents of silver in trust with a certain Gabriel in media. And 20 years later, he tells his son Tobias about this money left in trust. And the rest of the book of Tobit is about the journey of Tobias, sent to retrieve this money. And when Tobias reaches Media and finds Gabriel in chapter 9 of the book of Tobit, the money is returned to him, all the bags, one after another, returned to Tobias with the seals intact. Meaning the money was untouched preserved. And here's what we find in the Babylonian Talmud. In Baba Meshiach 42a, Samuel said, quote, money can only be guarded by placing it in the earth. So from the Middle Eastern Judean peasant point of view, and that's really what I'm trying to get at today. The third slave acted honorably. 
he buried and thus safely guarded his master's deposit. He refused to join the other slaves in the master's exploitation and domination. He prophetically critiqued the injustice of the system. He was like what we would call today a whistleblower, exposing the corruption of his boss and those who profited with him. And that slave, that third slave, he received the same reward that whistleblowers throughout the centuries have received as they work for justice and peace. The reward he received was one of punishment and persecution. But can you see, can you see now how this story would have been good news for a poor Judean peasant? Can you see how Jesus calling out and critiquing the exploitative and rapacious actions of the rich of his day would have been good news? I've talked before about the vast inequalities that were present in the ancient world. Three families owned half of all the arable land in the region of Syro-Palestine. Half. I've talked before about how the rich used an unjust debt peonage system to deprive peasants of, the, of their ancestral lands. And how huge swaths of the peasant population were turned into landless poor day laborers and eventually even into expendable subhumans. So I hope you can see how this parable would have been good news to the poor of Jesus' day. You might even say that Jesus' words had real political teeth. But not only was it a critique of the systems of his world, it also revealed the God whom Jesus called Father, the God Jesus revealed to us. Our God is not like a boss. God is not like the master. God sees, God knows, and God is on the side of the poor. And Jesus teaches his disciples that they can be like the third slave. We could call him a conscientious objector, to use another phrase. Refusing to go along with the system of exploitation and domination that ran rampant in their society. Disciples are rather people who non violently resist. The disciple is one who acts in solidarity with the poor of this world despite the consequences of such resistance. We live, of course, in a very different world, a different culture, a different economic system. We have different social problems. But Jesus can speak 
to them, to our world, to our problems, just as he spoke to the social problems of his own day. And Christians, disciples of Jesus, they're called to be those who resist the modern-day systems of domination and exploitation. And there are many. For all the inequality and injustice of the time of Jesus, our world puts them all to shame. And in the midst of our world, of our systems of domination and exploitation, our Lord is calling us to see that God is not on the side of the elites, but standing with the poor. And Christ is calling us to look to the example of that third slave, to practice nonviolent resistance to the exploitation and domination of the world, and to act in solidarity with the exploited and the poor of our world. This is the way that we can be disciples and reveal the God who loves those who are poor, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.